This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Emily Esterson from Coverside Magazine, the magazine of mounted fox hunting. And I'm Tara Tibbetts from Fort Worth, Texas. And you are listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 2248, August 15th, 2019. This episode is brought to you by Coverside Magazine. Good morning, Horse World. This is our special fox hunting episode. We come to you the third Thursday on every month. And this month is anniversary month, right, Emily? Yep. We've got two hunt clubs with big anniversaries, and we're going to talk to them today. We're going to talk to the masters about of each of those clubs today. And we also have an exciting anniversary, which is the 25th anniversary of Coverside Magazine, which launched 25 years ago. So those are the three exciting things that are coming up in the show today. And well, Emily, what have you been up to since the last time we chatted? Um, well, we've been taking the hounds out for exercise, getting them ready and fit for the upcoming season. It's still pretty hot out here in New Mexico, so we don't do a lot. Um, I think the highlight of the hounds day is when we come back to the kennels and we have these two little baby pools set up, um, and they get to splash around in the pools, which is probably the best thing we've, the best and cheapest innovation to the kennels we've ever done. So look at these two $20 Walmart pools and the hounds just dive right in and swim around. So that's super fun. And, uh, and what have you been up to Tara? Let's see. Well, we attempted to walk our hounds out last Saturday, but the a uh, really delightful temperature was forecasted to be about 104 degrees. So it's hot in Texas right now. Um, so other than that, just if you ride a horse, you kind of have to do it at like three o'clock in the morning or not at all. Um, I did, sadly, we had to put down our Brazos Valley Hound catfish a couple weeks ago. Oh, I saw um, that. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, he he was... I, I've never confirmed with Sandy, our master, exactly when he was born, but I'm pretty sure he was 14 years old. So, and he That's was a, long a life. yes, especially for, he was like a 90 ish pound hound. He was a big hound. And as anyone who has dogs knows, the bigger ones tend to not have the greatest longevity, but catfish, if I recall correctly, was the son of a hound named Brazos Valley Elliot. And Brazos Valley Elliot was probably one of our most well-known and successful hounds as far as hound showing um, in Virginia. And I, I think that Elliot was retired with Sandy when I first started hunting, but he's kind of, um, hi, he's just kind of really famous in our, in our group and around this part of the world just for being a really fantastic hound. And he really marked his offspring with freckles. Mm -hmm. And so I had two of his puppies, Cupid and Catfish, and they both had, were covered in freckles. So just was kind of a fun reminiscent to talk to a couple of the people when Catfish passed because he was the last of his litter. He outlived all of his puppies and his baby mama, as I called her, Peaches, who we had also, she passed away about a year and a half ago. So it's sad, but it's always fun to remember, you know, the impact. And we've got a litter of puppies coming along right now. And I think that they're going to enter, which is the formal word for starting to hunt this fall. Yeah, that's, um, that's always fun when you enter the new puppies. It's, it's great. You know, our, our kind of big news is that we drafted a couple of Saluki crosses, which, you know, that's a kind of a crazy thing that we're going to try because we're in the desert and sometimes you need a sight hound and Salukis are sight hounds. And so, these Saluki crosses came to us from, um, from Grand Canyon 
and they've been breeding sight hounds into their pack for quite a while and they're out in Arizona. So, um, so we're going to give it a try and see, see how it works. It could be a, a kind of a crazy season for us because we just don't have any idea how the Salukis are going to mesh in with, uh, the regular foxhounds. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that goes, you know? Well, and I'm curious, do you know why specifically they use Salukis and not Whippets or Greyhounds? I don't know that. Um, I would have to say that, you know, it's because the, the huntsman out at Grand Canyon, Peter, he, he's really been experimenting with breeding quite a bit. And I think he's just settled on the Saluki as the, as the best, you know, the best breed for, for the cross, you know, and that's kind of what they're looking for. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I kind of want to invite myself to come out and hunt with y'all. Cause I have, I have a whip it and I have a, a Borzoi Scottish deerhound cross and those are both sight hounds. And it's, you know, I'm obviously not a long time owner of these kinds of dogs, but having had six or seven fox hounds and now having had, I think, We've had, we call them beer hounds, the big dogs. We've had three of that litter from that litter. I'm just curious to see what they'd be like with the hounds. And do you cross the Salukis with fox hounds? I think that's the plan. So uh, the Salukis are crosses already. They are crossed with fox hounds, um, these that we drafted. So even though, I mean, even though they're like sleek, sleek guys, you know, sleek sort of greyhoundy looking guys, you know, they have foxhound them in them already. So, um, we, we're going to cross them with a couple of our, um, our good hounds and, and see what we get as far as puppies. Hey, so, hey guys, mm-hmm. I'm curious, explain to me drafting. You drafted in some hounds. This, that's not the term of the month, but I got, I've got to know. So drafting is when, so in fox hunting, you don't buy and sell hounds, you draft hounds. And so all the clubs, um, and all the packs are networked together. They, all the masters know each other and they meet at the Virginia hound show. Like, you know, Tara was talking about earlier and, and they look at each other's hounds and if, and they talk to each other. And so, you know, our huntsman was talking to, Peter, Peter Wilson, who's the huntsman of Grand Canyon. And they were talking about our similar kinds of terrain and territory and scenting conditions. And, and, um, so Peter gave us a couple of hounds. Um, and you know, the idea is that we'll give him a couple of puppies eventually when we breed them. Um, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's just, Hey, you know, I'm a little short on hounds because my pack is aging out. Or, you know, I haven't, didn't have a successful breeding season and I've got, you know, I've got to bring some pups along. So you might, so you might reach out to a huntsman who's, you know, whose pack you like and think it's going to be compatible with your own and, and find out if they have something that they want to move on. And the reason they want to move the hounds on just depends. I mean, maybe it's, they've changed their style of hunting or they have a new huntsman who has a different kind of idea about breeding. So there's lots of reasons that people draft hounds. And, um, and so it's really a trade. It's like a, you know, baseball trade without the money. So that's well, what and I think too, especially with, with hunting in the Western United States, if you think about it, it hasn't really existed all that long compared to how long they've hunted hounds in Europe and in England specifically. And so, I think we have a lot to learn with the differences in the terrain. And I, I had that conversation with Lynn from Red Rock Hounds when I was in Montana, cause she was talking about having added in some Walker Hound to her bloodlines because the Walker Hounds hunted really well in that terrain. And it's, you know, Red Rock is very different from where you are, Emily, versus where I am in Texas versus, you know, where they're hunting in California. And it's all so different from Virginia. And I think drafting puppies and hounds is a great way to, introduce new bloodlines and learn from other huntsmen what works on their terrain. And we, we pretty much always draft hounds every time we go to Virginia. I don't remember if she drafted any this year, but I know last year we got a hound from Piedmont. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's interesting. It is. And you know, they don't always, some people don't even draft from, some people draft from England and that there is that going on. Like some of those Midland hounds, you know, a bunch of episodes ago, we talked, um, we talked with, uh, Mason about the Midland hounds and, you know, 
he he has some great bloodlines and his pack gets drafted. He drafts hounds to England. And then in Kentucky, the Iroquois, they've drafted some really um, fuzzy English hounds. And when you hunt with them, with the Iroquois, they have these hounds that are like kind of wiry. They look like wire, they have wiry hair rather than Yeah, I think the Welsh hounds are the the wiry ones because I know there's a few of of those at the, I can't remember the name of it, the hunt that's here near Houston. Yeah. And they they actually... um, they actually did a big story in the magazine about their adventures and drafting hounds from overseas and flying, flying home with a bunch of hounds. It was a great story. It was really funny. So So I have have another foxhound question. I'm, I'm, I'm taking you guys completely off topic, but I'm fascinated by this. So as far as fox hunting in the United States is concerned and to be a, a pack that is registered with the masters of foxhounds association, there's not a rule that specifically says you must have a pack made up of breed X, Y, or Z. It doesn't have to be a pack of fox hounds. I'm using my air quotes. It can be, you can have outcrosses into other hunting breeds so to, to that you end up creating a pack that is most suitable to your territory and the quarry that you are chasing. Well, yes, and this is this is a little bit of a sensitive subject. I thought Jen. it might be. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking in my head, I'm letting Emily take this one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not totally sure how to answer the question because there has been some controversy about this, as you might imagine. And you know, the Masters of Foxhounds Association keeps a stud book, yeah. and it's uh, online and it's very extensive and it goes back a long t- a long way. And so if you go to their website and you type in, you go into their, um, the database and you type in the name of the, like Casula Drone Duke, for example, you can look at his bloodlines all the way back, you know, for a long way. It's like great, great, great grandfather. George Washington was president. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but, um, but when they, when hunts like, um, like Grand Canyon and now us and also probably Red Rock and a few of the others who are experimenting with some different breeds. I don't know that those hounds can be entered into the stud book. It doesn't have anything necessarily to do with your registration with the, with the MFHA. Right. Well, it just has to do with they're the not gonna, They're going to be outcrossed in such a fashion, just like um, if you have an event horse that is half thoroughbred and half American paint, he's not going to show up in the jockey club registry. So that, right. that makes perfect sense, but it is not a case of, um, that it's not allowed. And, and I think Tara made an excellent point in that fox hunting west of the Mississippi in the greater scheme of things is a very young sport. Right. So they haven't had, uh, centuries of, this breed being developed to hunt under specific circumstances. Because if you think about it, there aren't very many places in great Britain that has, have similar hunting conditions to Montana. This is true. Think about (laughs) hunting in England and the way the hounds are bred with those big ears, a big mainstay of fox hunting for centuries has been the humidity in the air for the scent. Well, there's no humidity where Emily lives. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And where I live, it gets hot and it burns off the scent with the sun. And so when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that a huntsman would want to introduce a sight hound who is more relying on vision than it is scent. Then you combine those two things. So I, I think all of it is fascinating. And I think it'd be interesting to see what this looks like 50 years from now with the hunts west of the Mississippi. Precisely. Yeah, and it'll be a it'll be a question the MFHA is going to have to address at some point. I mean, right now it's just a few of us rogues out there, you know, breeding a few rogues. I mean, we still have, you know, fourteen couple of regular foxhounds. So, you know, um, but so it'll be a, you know depending on how many pups we get, yeah. it might just be a few, you know, a few or. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever completely go to that cross unless it's super successful, but. Um, but anyway, that's, you know, it, yeah, I didn't it's a good topic stuff. How cool. Yeah. See, we have a bonus term of the month. Bonus term. Yep. There we go. Yep. Well, and when I think of drafting in my head, 
when, when people talk about it, when it relates to fox hunting. Cause again, I still consider myself as an element of a newbie cause I haven't done it a long time and where I am is fairly isolated, but in my head, it's like, you know, these, these foxhounds are like getting dressed up in their suits and they're getting wined and dined by the different huntsmen. And you know, you've, you've got the, First round you know, you draft. think of <laughs> exactly. I can totally see, yep. I can totally see Thelwell doing a series on that. Right. <laughs> yep. First round draft picks. Well, you know, and it's funny because when people ask me, you know, to explain why we you know, hunt with 13 or 14 hounds, you know, I always explain it like a baseball team. Well, you've got one guy that can really hit and you've got one guy that can really, you know, run the bases and you've got another guy that can. So, I mean, it's got, it's got kind of, kind of a similar, you know, configuration. That's an excellent way to explain it. You are just on fire today, Emily. I, I guess <laughs> I'm babbling ah. Word of the month. Ding, ding, oh, ding. perfect segue. <laughs> so Tara, what is a babbler? A, and hopefully we don't draft any down. babblers into the pack. You don't want to draft any babblers. I have to say that. You do not want to draft a vet, but I do feel like it's somewhat inevitable sometimes, right? But it's a foxhound that speaks to a non-existent line out of sheer excitement. And when I read that definition for, and I, Emily, I think you have, and Jen, I think maybe you have, but if you read the Rita Mae Brown books about fox hunting, I feel like almost in every single one, there's one young hound that she'll talk about in her books. That's a babbler. Yeah. It's a standard. And I character. feel like it's, yeah. Yes. And it often, Emily, is it, is it my, if my memory serves me. It is often sometimes a young hound that maybe is inexperienced and not knowledgeable. Right. It's a young hound usually. And sometimes they, sometimes hounds just get super excited and start to babble you know, and like for us, it happens as we're kind of going out towards, we're hacking out to where the huntsman's going to cast. And we have one hound in particular, who's, who's a yacker as we call him. <laughs> he's a babbler yacker and he just gets really excited and, um, and he just babbles away. And then sometimes after you cast, um, he'll just also continue babbling. So you don't want that because you want the hounds to be quiet until, they get on the line and then when they get on the line, they can speak. But if they're babbling, they distract the other hounds away from the mission of scenting. So, so will the huntsman discipline a babbler? Sometimes. Yes. Sometimes they will. And I would think that given the opportunity you would. Yeah. And sometimes the babbler gets adopted. Sometimes it becomes <laughs> a couch babbler. Sometimes it becomes a couch babbler. <laughs> Yeah, actually, that makes sense. I have, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times. I have a foster hound right now. He's a, he's a walker hound. He's not a fox hound from the shelter in Weatherford. And he, Huck, is a babbler. Yeah. He's talking right now. Yeah. Duke was never a babbler, but, uh, but some, we've had, a, we just adopted out one to um, a friend of mine, Diva, Duke's sister. Oh, good. Yep. And she is a babbler. So, um, but she said, she, my friend said to me, she talks a lot. I'm like, yep, she's a babbler. <laughs> so foxhounds should not be like watchdogs. Correct. Yeah. yeah. They see somebody trot, they see somebody walk up to your front door. They should not be barking. Right. Although we, we do appreciate the fact that Duke does do that. So, and he's pretty intimidating, even though when you see him in person, he looks like Snoopy. You know, he's a big Snoopy though. He is a big Snoopy. <laughs> I think that's uh, one of the advantages of foxhounds is kind of a little bit going back to our drafting conversation, you know, how hunts draft from hunt to hunt. And so people don't have how, like they don't have foxhounds. You, you don't see them. I mean, unless you're like in Virginia or the Carolinas, you don't really see them at the shelter. So I know when I take my foxhounds out, people are, they kind of get, you know, big eyes and look at me and they're like, what is that? Yep. They're ambassadors for fox hunting those house hounds. They really are, you know? Yeah. Yes. So Emily on, on our anniversary theme, what, what's coming up in the next cover side issue? Oh, well, speaking of house hounds who are ambassadors, we actually have a great, little story that's coming out in the next issue about a house hound that's an ambassador. Um, 
and rides around in convertible. I think I mentioned that last month, but this one coming up is our 25th anniversary and we're going to have um, some really great uh, reprints from the original cover side, which was on paper and it was in black ink and not for color. Um, and we're going to hopefully have a guest editor who's going to join us. Um, I can't say who it is yet cause it's not confirmed. And, we have, um, we're going to have some iconic covers that we've done, uh, in there. And we're going to, you know, talk about how the magazine has evolved from just a print magazine to now a, uh, website, an e-newsletter, a pretty active Facebook page. And of course the sponsorship of this podcast. And, you know, when I started, it was just the magazine. And now we have all of these other things that we do for Fox Hunting Publishing. So, um, it's going to be a really fun issue and I'm really excited to work on it. Uh, I did a guest editorial stint with the Fox Hunting Magazine in France, which is called Venerie and wrote a long story for them, um, about Coverside and its evolution. And so, um, and that was really fun to do. So some of that will be included as well. So, so how, be in how English, long have you that. been, how long have you been involved with um, cover side? this, this October, uh, or actually this November, it'll be 10 years for me. So it's my 10th anniversary. Another anniversary. Yeah. Another anniversary. So I, I'm curious, you know, speaking of cover sides anniversary and the, so you've really been at the helm of the magazine with this whole huge transition from print being the mainstay to going to where, you know, a lot of magazines I know that I subscribe to have become solely online. And then you see some magazines that have maintained a presence as, I would say, more or less like a coffee table presence of, with the beauty of the publication. Mm-hmm. So t- can you t- can you speak to that a little bit with your experience specifically with Coverside and the decisions to not go only web and to maintain your print and all that? Yeah. So I've been in the magazine business, um, my entire life and my entire career pretty much. So, um, I've seen the magazine business ebb and flow, but I would say starting in about 2009, it really, it really started ebbing. And one of the great things about Coverside that has always been surprising to me, but, but great is that, people love Coverside. They love getting the print magazine. They love the, we really work hard to make it sort of beautiful and coffee table-ish and like run as many beautiful photos as we can and, and, you know, run art if we can and, you know, just sort of the lifestyle element of it. And, um, and so even though our ad revenues, just like everybody in the print business have diminished, Um, it took a lot longer for that to happen because we are the only magazine in the United States that deals with fox hunting. So, or in North America, I should say, because we have quite a few Canadian subscribers. But um, so, so for us, it was a really slow, it was a slow decline for some other magazines. It was a really fast one. So, um, you know, not to say that, that our ad sales are, you know, anywhere near where they were in 2010. Um, But it still is, you know, it's still supporting the magazine enough to, for us to do a print print version. And it's also really important to MFHA that they have that connection with their subscribers so and their members. And so that's, you know, that's why Coverside is, is, as, is as successful as it has been. And, you know, the other properties that we launched, the website, the e-newsletter, the, um, you know, the Facebook presence, and now the podcast – you know, these, these things are all just kind of put it all together as a whole package. You know, you can't just do print anymore. You got to do everything. So, (laughs) so that's, that's how it's evolved. It's been a fun, fun project for me. I love it. You know, I love it. It's my, you know, I do quite a few different magazines, but this is the one that I love the most. So. I think it's so interesting and and I hope you're having, um, I feel like a lot of magazines lately in the last three or four years have seen what looks to me like a little bit of a resurgence of, you know, with the beauty of the, the coffee table look of a magazine. So I hope that, I hope that happens for cover side. Cause I know I love looking at it and it is, it is beautiful. It's very well done. Good job. Thank you. So shall we get to our guests? 
Yes, and as and and before we do, I will mention again. I think I mentioned this last episode when the power goes out and the internet is down because somewhere there is a, a tornado or hurricane. You can't surf, and you need a magazine. Oh Just, yeah, I'm putting it out there. Uh, remind everybody where they can go online to get a subscription or sign up for the e newsletter, etc. Uh, the place to sign up would be mfha.com. And there's a tab where you can go and sign up for the magazine and the e-newsletter. Um, you have to subscribe. It's $35 a year. You get both. And you also get some other things like, you know, swag, like mug, hat, T-shirt. And you can, so, look, and you can look up uh, Bloodlines for Foxhounds. Right. You can look up Bloodlines for Foxhounds and you get invited to special educational events and all kinds of things. So. Cool stuff. Well, let's welcome our first guest. So we have with us today Sue Sensor from the Camden Hunt, and the Camden Hunt is celebrating its 90th anniversary. And this is our anniversary issue, our anniversary edition, because we have Sue on, and then we'll have um, the Loudon Hunt, who's celebrating 125 years. So Sue, tell us about Camden Hunt and give us a brief rundown about its history. Um, well, the Camden Hunt was established in 1926 and recognized in 29. Um, we have been very fortunate over the years to have basically three primary landowners um, who have been very generous about allowing us to hunt over their property. And the Teal family that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, Dale and Judy Teal, were joint masters for a very, very long time. Um, I have, I suppose for the 90 years, I am new to the hunt. I started hunting down here in the 80s, um, and this is my ninth year as a joint master, but um, there have been several people who have hunted with us for 50 years, 55 years. Um, we are a hunt that I would say is comprised mostly of people that um, are not so much, you know, we're not like the Virginia hunts where you grow up with horses in your backyard and you go pony clubbing. And Camden is a very, um, it's, a, it's a town that is, it's a horse town because of the race, the racetracks that we have here. But the hunting is mostly um, people from out of the area that come down and hunt with us. We have people mm. that come from North Carolina, from Charlotte, Columbia, um, Blythewood. Um, we have more out-of-town members than we do actual hunting members that live in Camden. We have a lot of our social members that live in Camden. Um, but we are fortunate that we've had these landowners that have allowed us to hunt over their property for as many years as we've been here. And a lot of it is in conservation now and protected. Um, and we are, I, I don't know where else to go with this. Um, I would the history other than the fact that the family was extremely instrumental in keeping this hunt going through the bad times, um, Dale Teal passed away and then, um, excuse me, Judy Teal passed away and then her husband followed here a couple of years later. And um, we've had several different shifts of, in the, um, you know, with masters. Tara's, Tara wanted to ask a question. So Tara, jump in. Yeah. Hi, Sue. This yeah, is Tara. <laughs> okay. I am. Um, so I know Camden's in South Carolina and I had the pleasure of going out, um, with Tryon hounds and green Creek hounds when I was at the world equestrian games last fall. And mm -hmm. one thing that I thought was really interesting and I'd be curious to hear, I don't know exactly where Camden is, but I know green Creek and Tryon are pretty close to one another and they, they overlap in membership and I, in yeah, the Carolinas are not a huge geographic area. So I'm just curious is there a lot, uh, you know, are there other hounds or hunts nearby that, right. you know, members kind of go back and forth to? Well, we've got, um, we're about two and a half hours from Tryon and Green Creek. Um, we have the Aiken hunt, which is about 
90 minutes away from us uh, on the other side of Colombia. We're about 40 miles outside or 30 miles outside of Colombia, which is the capital of South Carolina. We have um, the Low Country and the Middleton Place Hunt, which are over towards the coast. And then we've got um, the Whiskey Road Hunt, which is also in the Aiken area. And we do have a lot of people that come come cunning from us with, you know, from those hunts. Um, We've had a lot of interaction with Fred Berry and the Sedgefield Hunt due to the performance trials that we'd like to go to. Um, We've had them down a lot and Southern Pines as well. Um, the Moore County hunt mm-hmm. and it's, um, it's, you know, we're located in an area where we're, we're easy to get to. And this year, because of the horrible winter that most everybody had, I think we had probably more people coming down and spending a, a few days with us and then going to Aiken and low country and just sort of doing the tour of South Carolina, just to get, to get away from the winters up North. Um, I'd love to do that. (laughs) I know. I think I think we all would, wouldn't we? I mean, I'd like to go someplace colder right now. It's been so miserably hot here, and I know that our huntsman is actually. She took a couple of. uh, Well, she took three of the puppies that we just whelped about eight, ten weeks ago um, up to the Essex hunt, and she was. They went out on day, you know, and she was telling us about, oh, they had three views in the first cover, and then they ran them, and then they had a break, and then they went to another draw, and they ran another red box. And I was like, all right, it's 99 degrees down here. I don't even want to hear about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But she, she's having a great time up there enjoying the cooler weather. But So yeah. we were having a big conversation earlier about drafting hounds. Are you drafting those hounds? Uh, to Essex, we or? have we have a great relationship with Bart Poole, the huntsman up there. Um, he we like his breeding and he likes our breeding, and we've drafted hounds from him. He's given us hounds. Um, we've given him hounds. We've sent bitches to his dog. Excuse me. And um, we've really, really, really liked the the puppies that we've gotten from him and um, the older hounds that we've gotten from him have just, just absolutely with hardly any problems at all, just worked right in with our pack um, from the get go. And we've enjoyed having them, Um, you know, it's, it's like, I think everybody that would agree that when you get a hound, sometimes they're an older hound, but, um, and you're lucky if you get a few years out of them, but if you're really lucky, you can get a bitch or a dog and breed to them and then keep that particular strain going. We love that crossbred that we've been, um, that we've been getting through him. And, um, it's a, it's a great relationship. We, um, we've gone to also to, um, uh, Millbrook, where Melissa was a whip for a few years, we've got a good relationship with them. More counties, we've done things with their hounds, and I think it's very important to try to see as much as you can. I think that was the the most fun I had going to the Hark Forward um, trials down at at Mason's this winter was just seeing all of the different hounds working together and seeing the different types um, that were all there. And uh, amazingly enough, when some, then when one man can hold the horn and have 80 some hounds just hunt like a pack and they'd never even seen each other before. It was, it was really, really a great experience. I enjoyed it. it so it really much. was. Yeah, I was there too, and I, I really, I really thought that was just an incredible thing. It was incredible. Those, it really, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was just, it was beautiful to watch. It really was, especially the second day. The first day we didn't get to see a whole lot, but mm-hmm. second day was just amazing. But anyway, kind of gotten off the path there. So I yeah. wanted to ask about. You said something earlier about the three landowners that have been part of your history for you know for for your whole time. Um, so mm-hmm. most of our listeners probably aren't that familiar with 
with how that works, with how landowners um, and land conservation easements and fox hunting all interact. So could you just talk a little bit about those landowners and 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 how how many acres you have and um, to hunt over? And I mean, the hunts don't actually own the acreage in most cases, but um, so, right. yeah, right. just give us a give us a rundown on that. Well, I would say the Lloyd family has largest piece of property that we hunt over. Mrs. Lloyd passed away several years ago and her children put the land into a foundation and we have a lease that we sign and renew with the family every year to continue the rights. Our country is basically pine woods and the Burns family and the Teals also, um, we sign leases with them every year and then they have the right to do timbering when they need to. And also they do a lot of pine straw harvesting. Um, this year, they, <laughs> the Lloyd family did a major clearing of a lot of timber. And as much as it disrupted us at first, um, it actually provided pretty good hunting because it it moved the game from one area of our country into a more consolidated area. So we were having really, really good runs. Um, and it, it was, it was hard on the, 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 uh, the field masters basically, because a lot of the trails just disappeared when they came in and literally they clear cut just huge swaths of land. And, um, there were no more trail signs. People had a hard time finding their way around, but um, we actually had one of the best seasons we've had <laughs> in years. We've um, <laughs> we've been very fortunate that way. Um, but it's the I think the um, the one would hope that I know for sure that the um, the Lloyd family I think will always have their land available. They don't particularly have any desire to develop it and it's not a very developable area um there's really no there, there's really no reason to want to all of a sudden put a subdivision in the middle of our hunt country um so we feel very fortunate we're about oh 12 by 15 acres i guess um mm-hmm. 8 to 10,000 acres we're looking at trying to we're desperately looking at trying to open up more country, but we're surrounded by people that owned large, large, large tracts of land. A lot of companies in North Carolina, banks and land companies in North Carolina own these large tracts of timber and they lease them out to deer hunters. And the deer hunters are not exactly receptive to us coming in. And even after the deer season is over, um, they just don't really want to to share the property with us. Um, We do have one landowner that I'm going to go talk to soon that I think will probably let us have access to his property. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's an ongoing thing. We've, we've looked and we've looked and we've looked, but we're sort of, we're stuck because we've got a river that runs through the middle of the country on the west side. There's no way we can get any further than that. And um, we're limited by the highways that surround us. And then we get into a developed area. So um, I don't think we're ever going to get any great, huge development uh, as far as um, more hunting country. Um, we did have some chances to go up with Mecklenburg. They've leased a really, really lovely piece of property that's just on the edge of Kershaw County. Uh, it's about 40 minute drive from our kennels. And it was so wet all winter long that they didn't even get down there. And so we didn't get a chance to go up there, but we're certainly hoping we can do that again this year. Um, we have a, it seems like every year, by the time the deer season is over, we've hunted our property so hard and we, we would love to have someplace else we could go to just, you know, maybe a, a two or three times a month just to go give our country a little bit of a rest. So that's what we're really, really working on right now. And I think it's a problem for a lot of hunts in the area. You know, you've a lot yeah, of I'm in Texas. good runs. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Texas I'm, and there's no shortage of land here, but we face the same challenge that you're speaking about with the folks who have land that you that they hunt deer on, they don't really want us out there because they they presume that the hounds will um hinder their hunting, which and obviously we don't want to get shot at, so <laughs> we avoid right. that as well. But right, right. Just, just kind of going back to um you know, 90 years is remarkable and that's, it's so impressive. And I just, I'm curious, what do you think has been, you know, what has been one of the main contributors to Camden's longevity up to now? And what do you think will be the bigger, you know, obviously land is a big factor, but what other factors do you think will affect the the longevity going forward? Um, I think the, the social aspect um, of the hunt is very important. We have more social members than we do riding members. They enjoy coming. We have breakfast every Saturday after we hunt and they enjoy doing that. They enjoy coming to when we start our, you know, summertime land clearing, they, they will come out and help us do that. They're always volunteering to serve at, um, at stirrup cups, lunches. We have, um, we have an amazing group of social members and we also are very fortunate that we have some people that have come back after their children have grown and gone away to school and they're back hunting with us now. And so it's kind of like a rebirth of the Camden hunt from 20 years ago, people are coming back and they're bringing their children along now and their grandchildren and we've got a really, really fun, fun, fun group of young people that hunt with us. And I think we all know that, you know, that's the future of fox hunting in, in our country is encouraging the young people. We're not as fortunate as a lot of areas where kids grow up riding their ponies, um, you know, in their backyard because it, it's just not, Camden just isn't set up that way. There aren't that many people that as I said before, that live actually in Camden with their families and hunt. Um, a lot of them trailer in every single time we go hunting and some of them trailer in two hours away. We have one girl that comes all the way from Charleston twice a week and she is just an amazing, amazing, amazing girl. And she has hunted with Tony Leahy in Illinois and in Georgia and she's hunted with Low Country, Middleton Place, Aiken, Whiskey Road, um, Wyweary when they were hunting. And she still says that she likes hunting with us the best. So mm-hmm. we're very fortunate to have her. Um, it's a it's a fun group of people. I think everybody um, everybody. It's you know it, when you don't grow up hunting. We have a lot of people that have started hunting when they're in their 40s and 50s, and yet we've got enough people that um, are of that age and older that have made them feel at home and have given them some help and advice and guidance as far as, you know, what kind of horse they need to get and and what to do, and and have sort of taken them under their wing. So it's a really, it's a great group of people that we have here in our hunt. It really is. Um, I think we're very fortunate. Um, Well, and then kind of along those lines of, of the, just the continuing in the longevity and yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm in Texas and what do you think of when you think of Texas, but you, you think of cowboys. So we (laughs) have, at any any given hunt a fairly diverse group of riders and we might you know we might have a couple cutters come with us we might have a couple ropers come with us and obviously they Mm -hmm. all roll their eyes at us because we have to wear helmets but I feel like in that regard hunting has changed pretty significantly in the last five or ten years with more hunts being more open to riders coming and not necessarily fitting the cookie cutter black coat tan breeches look have you all found that affecting you or are you in an area that's that is just predominantly English and so that's not we are predominantly English um I think the most diverse that we've gotten is um there was one person that hunted a mule a few times which was (laughs) it was amusing um but when she brayed it kind of scared a few of the other horses um and then we've got a girl a wonderful wonderful 
um, a woman that hunts with us. She's fairly new to our area that hunts Tennessee walkers because she and her husband work for a man from Charlotte and he has bird dogs and they, they run, you know, they have, he has a huge tract of land um, that we would love to be able to hunt over where they um, have people come in for the weekend and they go on these hunts and they hunt quail and that her job is to mount all the people that come in. So she spends a lot of time searching for Tennessee walkers and horse because they're the easiest ones to just put somebody on and say, here you go, you know, follow this guy and you're good. And, and she comes out on her Tennessee walkers. Um, We've had a couple people that have come out. Um, one of our one of our landowners, who's also a, a small animal vet, used to come out with his western saddle every now and then, and he would just sort of lurk in the woods, and we would see him peeking around a corner. <laughs> he was. Um, my feeling is, I'm not. I wouldn't be crazy about somebody coming out in western attire, but. I know when it gets cold, I'll say whatever keeps you warm, whether it's a parka or a fleece jacket or whatever, as long as the dark conservative color, I'd rather you be out there comfortable than not be out there at all. Um, but I, we don't, we really haven't had anybody say, you know, can I bring my quarter horse out there with my Western tack, you know? So we've been lucky that way, I guess. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't suppose I'd mind it, but it just hasn't really presented itself yet. So mm-hmm. if it does, well, then we'll worry about it when it happens. So, so Sue, we're, we're just about out of time here. And um, so we're going to just wrap it up. Can you tell us how um, people can find Camden Hunt if they want to come visit you uh, down there in South they, Carolina? They can go to our website, the Camden Hunt, and they can find directions and talk to our secretary and give her a call or give any one of the masters a call and we'd love to have visitors whenever they're in the area for sure. Great. Definitely. Well, thanks for joining us today and um, happy 90th birthday. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's been fun. Enjoyed it. Nice to meet you. So some upcoming events that I have scoured the internet um, to bring to our listeners. I think this is just a great time of the season or before the season to find something near you if you're wanting to get involved with fox hunting. And so I'm going to kind of go quickly through a list of events I've, I've recorded down here. And most any of these, you can do a Google search or a Facebook search for the name of the hunt and you'll find a page or a website that will give you more detailed information, but I'll definitely let you know the general geographic area. So we'll start out with Middlebrook Hunter Pace Series. They've, I believe they've already done a couple, but they have another one coming up this weekend, August 17th and 18th, and that's in Virginia. And it looks like they also have a tax sale to go along with that. So if you want to go check out that Hunter Pace Series, there's also a Dalebrook Fox. Foxhounds in Maryland has what they're calling their fox hunting series. And I thought this looked kind of interesting. On August 22nd, they're doing a hound walk. And then on September 5th, they're doing hound roading. So that looks like a really great opportunity to get out and just kind of get an introduction to what they are and what they're all about if you're in the Maryland area. So that was Dela Brook Foxhounds. And then Jennifer let us know that she found an event at Misty Morning Hounds, which is in the Gainesville, Florida area. They're having what they call Jumping Sundays, and that starts August 25th and then continues September 1st and September 8th. And that's an opportunity to go do some some slow, easy jumping, and then you can introduce your horse to hounds or see the hounds a little bit and kind of, you know, get your tippy toes into checking out fox hunting. Then we're going to go head west to Santa Fe Hunt in California on September 7th. They have a hunter pace. And if you, if you search for them... Um, both Google and Facebook, they have pretty in-depth pages about what they've got going on with that. But I did see that they have awards and they have events for folks writing English, folks writing Western, and they have some stuff for juniors. So that's pretty fun and exciting. And then heading back east again is the Beaufort Hunter Trials. And that's in Pennsylvania. And that's a little ways away, but I think the Hunter Trials are, it's a little more um, pump and circumstance and it's a little got more structure around the event. So put that on your calendar for September 29th, 2019. Again, both 
Comfort Hunter Trials. And then last but not least, our next guest is going to be Carol Galvin here in a moment. And the Loudon Hunt, for which she's a master, has a barbecue trail ride on August 25th. And I think we'll learn in our conversation with Carol that they do a lot of community activities to try to get folks introduced and interested in fox hunting. So check that out in Virginia again on August 25th. So now I'm going to get excited for our conversation coming up now with Carol Galvin, the MFHA at Loudon Hunt. So our next guest is Carol Galvin, MFH with the Loudon Hunt in Virginia. And as this is our anniversary edition, I wanted to talk to Carol and talk to her about Loudon's 125th anniversary, which is just amazing. So, Carol, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Loudon Hunt and its history and how it came to be and where you are today. Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, we are going into our 125th season, which is um, pretty remarkable for, for any club to get to 125 years. Um, we were founded in 1894. Um, we're one of uh, a myriad of packs in Northern Virginia. Um, we're located in Leesburg. Our kennels are right outside of, of downtown Leesburg, um, which in and of itself is, is kind of unique. Uh, our hunting country uh, used to span from the Potomac River uh, up north with the border with Maryland um, in what used to be the old Short Hills uh, Hounds territory all the way down south to what is now Dulles Airport. So any of you who are listening can imagine that swath of, of land um, that used to be the, the huntable country of the Loudon Hunt. Um, certainly, of course, you know, times have changed. Uh, urbanization has come in. And, and of course, our country is uh, not what it used to be. But uh, we still hunt a pack of mainly American foxhounds. Um, we do have some crossbreds, some, some Penn Marydells. And I believe we have one English hound uh, in our pack. Um, and, and as we mentioned before, we're going into our 125th year. Um, we certainly had, uh, some celebrities, uh, in our history who have been associated with the Loudon Hunt, um, probably first and foremost, uh, former governor of Virginia, Westmoreland Davis, uh, was a joint master of the hunt early on in its, in its infancy. Um, and some people may remember having read an article in Coverside many years ago on, uh, the late master Clarence Moore, uh, who perished on the Titanic when it sank in 1912. He was also a joint master of the Loudon Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, we have some other historical figures that, that have some provenance with the club. Um, one of our members just recently, in, in going through some old uh, boxes and, and, and trunks in uh, one of the houses, discovered a, an uncashed check from uh, Jackie Kennedy uh, from the 1960s. Wow. Uh, so... You know, definitely, I know, not unique uh, to Loudon because I know Jackie Kennedy was associated with a number of different hunts, uh, you know, in the area in the 60s, but, you know, a piece of memorabilia um, for sure. So that's a little bit on, I guess, the background and history of the club. Um, we have members uh, who have been members of Loudon Hunt since the 70s and 80s, um, you know, all the way up to, to members who've just joined in the last year. So we definitely have a good representation um, of members that have history with the club and, and definitely some, some new energy also as we go into our 125th. So Carol, I was looking at the website, your website earlier, and, um, and I noticed a couple of things. Uh, first of all, was the Westmoreland Davis connection and um, the house that that's Morvan park now that was uh, Westmoreland Davis's home. Did you hunt over that? Do you hunt over that land there? Um, uh, we, we don't, we don't currently, um, it's a little tricky, uh, for those of you who are familiar with that area, it's a little, it's a little challenging with route 15, um, being right, right there and how heavily trafficked, uh, that road is today. But, um, in years past, I think as recently as the 1990s, um, we were still hunting there and there's actually a very famous picture, um, in a book, uh, that I actually can't even remember the title of it, but there's a picture of our late master, uh, Joe Rogers hunting, hunting the hounds uh, at a lawn meet, um, on the front lawn at Morvan park from the 1980s. And just to, to let our listeners know, we talk about the Virginia hound show pretty frequently on the show and, uh, Morvan park is where the Virginia hound show takes place. So I just wanted to, to throw that in there. There was also, 
um, this amazingly iconic photo, at least to me, the editor of Coverside, this iconic photo of the hounds um, and the huntsman on the ferry that crosses the Potomac um, there. So, so I don't, it's on your website, but I've seen it in lots of different places. So was that one time, was your territory across the river? Um, the, the, the provenance of that photo, I, I have some, some background on it. Yes. I mean, it's, it's something that you, we looked at the photo and we have identified it as, as Loudon Hunt and, and Loudon Hunt town. Um, so that, as you said, are the hounds crossing White's Ferry. Oh, White's um, Ferry. So, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it was probably at that point in time, you know, there was just not a big bridge going across the Potomac and the only way to get uh, from one side to the other was, was to utilize White Ferry. And so there's that, as you said, that iconic image that I know there is a replica or, or perhaps even a, a, a painting of uh, at MSHA headquarters now. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've written, I've been on that ferry. It's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's, it is. It's pretty amazing when you look at that picture and you see, you know, oversides <laughs> and the huntsman on a horse and the hounds just sitting there and you just imagine they're going along on the ferry and, uh, you know, certainly no one was there rocking the boat or trying to jump into the, uh, into the Potomac river. Cause that, that could have upset the apple cart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, I can't imagine a horse standing on a ferry. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I have spent a fair amount of time in your neighborhood, and I I can't even imagine it's it's become so developed there in that area. Um, t- tell us a little bit about how you maintain your country and how you keep hunting in an area that is just out of control in terms of development. It's, it's certainly a challenge as, as you pointed out. And, and, uh, you know, again, to kind of go back to my earlier statement about the, the hunting territory of the Loudon hunt having diminished over time, you're, you're completely correct. A lot of it has become very urbanized. Uh, there are subdivisions where there used to be hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland. Um, so it, it, it is really challenging. Um, I think the, the onus is really on us as the joint masters to really maintain, um, as best we can really cordial relations with all the landowners. Um, definitely, you know, staying in touch with you know, local police departments, animal control, uh, making sure that we have road whips out there to, to guard important road crossings. And I think too, it's also important that we're present in the community. You know, we show up on horseback when we're in formal season, you know, gentlemen ha- who have their colors are wearing scarlet and, and we're out there in force in the community so that the, the urban community that has moved into you know, right outside of Leesburg is familiar with the hunt, its hounds, the days that we hunt and, and come out and see us and are aware, you know, Hey, that's the Loudon hunt. And there are their hounds going out today. So that's, that's definitely been an important part of, of keeping um, the hunting country open for us. Um, and, and just, we really work very hard with our hounds, you know, in a small country, uh, the staff work very diligently to understand that you have to get to busy roads quickly and be on hand. Um, and really to, to try to make the best we can of, of a small country. And I know, you know, it's really not necessarily unique to Loudon Hunt. Uh, I know there are plenty of other packs that, that face that challenge, but you know, we feel we've, we've done a good job at being able to, put forward good sport in, uh, in what is a, a markedly reduced country. So when you say that you get out there in the community, do you think that people in the Leesburg area really appreciate the history of fox hunting and, and the fact that it's so deeply ingrained in, in Northern Virginia as, as part of the culture? Um, is that part of your sort of educational mission? It, it is. And, and I think that people are in general very familiar with it. I mean, certainly those uh, those landowners that are in the developments that surround our kennels are, are familiar with it. Um, in the larger community, we, we make it a point every year to do at least one, if not more than one, um, educational events. We've had several at another turn pack in Percival, um, really sort of educating people on fox hunting. We, uh, we liaise frequently with the pony club, um, to have them out to, you know, fox hunting 101 seminars. Um, and we've done a lot with just the regular, I would call it non equestrian community. 
Um, number of years ago, we presented hounds at the opening of the Loudon Hounds baseball stadium. When they inaugurated the new stadium, our hounds were the ones who, uh, presented on the field at the stadium, um, for, for the opening of the stadium. Um, we've paraded hounds, uh, certainly at the point to point races before. Um, and we have several members that are talking about working with our hounds at, you know, different parades and functions in Leesburg and in other places where the public can really start to come in contact more frequently um, with us and with our hounds. We were, ta- we were talking earlier about, uh, about hunting as, as a base, as like describing a packs of hounds to people who don't understand hunting as baseball teams. So that's kind of a funny, funny uh, combination of things. So Tara, you, you said you had a question. Yeah. Hi, Carol. I, you know, I'm listening to you talk and I, I can't help but be impressed that it, it sounds like you're, you all Loudon is very well organized and it, you know, you have good relationships in your community. And I'm curious with 125 year history to maintain relevance in, in the world as it is today. Cause the, you know, like you've said, we've all said all the time, how much things are changing do you have hunt members who have specific roles related to you're in charge of landowner relations and you're in charge of social activities and you're in charge of networking with pony club? And yeah, how do you have that set up to maintain a unified voice in your community and stay active? That's, that's a great question. And, and we really do try to parse out and divvy up a lot of those responsibilities um, among some of the membership. So, you know, certainly the landowner relations that, that more or less falls to us three uh, joint masters uh, to really liaise with the landowners. But our, our club president um, is himself, in fact, a landowner. He lives up the street from the kennels. Uh, so he is in the community frequently um, with people up and down Thomas Mill Road, Dry Mill, outside of Leesburg. Um, so, so he does some of that landowner relation um, as well. So we're, we're really lucky to have that connection. Um, on the social fundraising front, we've we've been very lucky, I will say, to have members who um, give very much of their time and of their talent to organize social events, um, things like hound meet and greets. We have every once and again on a Sunday, um, we will put together a hound meet and greet for uh, young riders or riders with horses who've never been around hounds before to come out and say, give this a try, bring your horse out, introduce them to hounds in a low stress environment. We're not hunting, uh, you know, get an opportunity to really sort of see a little bit of our country and, and inculcate your horses to being around hounds. So that's, that's one thing that we do. Um, and the social committee does maintain, I would say a pretty active calendar. Um, we actually just had a meeting not three weeks ago where we really planned out our social calendar, um, going forward into the spring for, for the rest of the 125th. Um, opening season parties, hunt ball, um, certainly the point-to-point races, which we put on uh, in consort with Loudon Fairfax Hunt. We, we put that on as a joint venture um, at Oatlands outside of Leesburg. That's certainly a huge um, way that we get out in the community and, and certainly get our name out there and, and let people know that you know Loudon Hunt I- exists at 125 years and, and come out and uh, see what we're all about. Well, Great. and then kind of along with that, um, I'm curious that, you know, this is just me being inquisitive. I'm in Texas and we, we have a very often diverse field in our, in our hunt. So you'll see folks in Western saddles and we have polo players. And is, is there much of a diversity in riding types around you? So do you, do you, do you welcome folks who want to come out in Western tack or are you pretty strict with tradition or how do you broach that? Uh, that's that is a great question. We we really try to be as inclusive as as we possibly can with people. Um, the big thing for us, because we we are a small club, we have I would say between twenty five and thirty members. We are a very small club, um, so for us, we really want to broaden and increase access to fox hunting for people from all different types of backgrounds. Now, to date, I can't say that we've had anyone come out in Western Tack, but they certainly um, would be welcome. Uh, we have a lot of times a, a dedicated third field, which is a true hilltopper walk-only field um, for people who really want to just come out and get their feet wet in fox hunting. They don't want to run, jump, gallop uh, the whole day. They just want to do a true hilltopper field and go from hill to hill and watch the hounds work. 
And that has been for us a great way we have found at getting um, not only juniors, but people who are adults who are just interested in fox hunting and, and are just trying to get the lay of the land, but they don't want to go with a, a really necessarily hard riding hunt right from the get go. And then also for older people, frankly, people who, you know, rode and hunted a lot in their youth or, you know, up through middle age. And, you know, they just don't want to, don't want to go that hard anymore, but they still want to be involved in fox hunting. They still want to get out and be with hounds and, and enjoy a day's sport um, in any way that they can. So we, we try to be, as I said, as accommodating as we can with that third field to try to reach as many people as possible. So Carol, we're, um, we're just about out of time here. And uh, is there a way that people can find Loudon Hunt if they want to come out and see you guys and get, get involved with Loudon? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we, we have a website. It's www.loudonhunt.com. Um, it's pretty up to date. Uh, I try as best I can to, to keep things current on the website. Uh, Facebook page, if you just search Loud Hunt, we have a, a very up-to-date Facebook page uh, where we run events, social events. Um, we set out the days and times that we're going to cub, the days and times that we're going to set up for formal uh, formal season. So all that information is in both of those places. Um, the hunt monitor number is also on the website. Um, and one thing we are doing is all the hunt officers and many of the members have uh, a stack of what we've given out this year as free cap cards to people in the community. So if you run into someone who's a member, uh, one of the masters, an officer of the hunt, and you'd like to come and give fox hunting a try with us, uh, you know, let them sign their name on the back of a card and, and give it to you and, and come out for a free cap with us because we'd love to see people out uh, in the field for our 125th. That is a great idea. Um, I am going to take that idea to my hunt committee because that is really awesome. Uh, I was just going to fly to Virginia and try to go get a card and go hunt with them. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's too, ha- too long a haul for me, but, <laughs> but I do know people in the area. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that is a spread it far and wide, you know, certainly, like I said, I mean, we're, we're trying our best to, uh, you know, promote, promote access to, to fox hunting this season in honor of our 125th. So, you know, come one, come all is, is, is our motto for the year. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Carol, for your time. It was uh, awesome speaking to you and congratulations on your 125th to you and all the members and masters and staff of Loudon. And we really appreciate you being on with us today. You can find Covert Side online at www.ecovertside.net. Don't forget the T in Covert Side. Or you can see the edi- digital edition at issuu.com slash ecovertside. Tara can be found on Instagram. Just search for TN Tibbets with all the B's and all the E's and all the T's. Find the links to today's guests in the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. You can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Thanks to our sponsors today, Coverside Magazine and the Masters of Foxhounds Association. Good night. Good night. Good night.